Hey guys, today I spoke with someone who you might know and has quite the online presence. It's the one and only Kevin Henney, uh, a real thought provoker. And that's exactly what we did. We dove both into the past, uh, but also far ahead into the future and looked at what the next big disruptive thing is going to be for tech and software. Enjoy. Beyond Coding. Welcome to Beyond Coding, a dive into the world of successful people in IT. From your sponsors, Zebia, creating digital leaders. Here's your host, Patrick Akil. Hey, Kevin. Hey, how's it how's going, it Patrick? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, you're calling from Bristol. I am indeed. Yes, uh, sun is shining. We're having a bit of a heat wave, so it's been over thirty degrees, um, and uh, it's kind of mid-afternoon here, so it's okay. like peak temperature. Um, <laughs> so after this, I'm going to go and sit out in the in the shade of the garden. So I'm going to enjoy that yeah. rather than being. Uh, uh, stuck in well you know my office uh, is is, a, is is not too bad but yeah it's um uh i think over the uh, over the day it does pick up a bit of heat especially when yeah. i'm talking obviously <laughs> you get heated while you're talking yeah, yeah this is actually our first uh our first remote episode um oh. so this is going to be interesting i guess a weird dynamic cool. camera wise but uh should work out in the end hopefully um so yeah. I, I looked into your past and i saw first of all the, the th thought provoker tag on LinkedIn. Uh, I love yes. that. Uh, you speak on a yeah. lot of conferences and you have quite a, a versatile history there. Uh, you wanted to chime in? Uh, yeah, um, I, I think the, uh, yeah, I, it's one of those <laughs> things. I work for myself. And yeah. so what do I choose as a job title? And I just, you know, by definition, if you work for yourself and you have your own company, you are the director of that company. That's very dull. Um, CEO is not much better. And I just thought, well, why don't I think about it as a role? And, and somebody said they, they enjoyed my talks and it was around this is a year or two ago. And they said, oh, you know, you're always uh, you know, thought provoking. And I thought, you know what, let's go with that. People tell me this. Um, um, I always offer them something, take what they've got and then give them back something different that just a little twist, I think. Um, yeah. So and I think that comes out of uh, yeah, my, um, my, my career is not particularly structured. Um, and, you know, uh, in terms of software development, it's gone from being the guy who writes the code to um, helping others write code um, uh, to making observations about how people write code and, yeah. and kind of cycling through those various things. And I think that um, I find that quite enjoyable, but that does also give me um, kind of thoughts. I think it's quite interesting to think about. I think that for many people, they have a different approach to um, what they spend their time on. I'm I'm constantly seeing what we do as a series of puzzles. And I think puzzle solving is certainly something that many uh, people in software development find there's a kind of a common core. There is always this puzzle, there's this problem and this constant question of why is it like this or why do we keep doing this or is there a better way of doing that? All yep. of these questions kind of push us through. And I, I'd like to think that somehow uh, that's how I do things. <laughs> I think uh, I think it does. I mean, I, I love it as a title, and it does differentiate you from uh, from others. Let's say, uh, but I like the cycle that you mentioned, right? Writing code yourself, helping other people other people write code, uh, or thinking about why we write the code in the ways we do. Uh, and you've probably seen that cycle throughout multiple organizations. Uh, I'm yeah. just wondering, what is kind of the silver lining you've seen uh, across those organizations in in the problems that people face? while either writing code or helping other people write code? 
and such. Yeah, I think I think the I think the biggest challenge there's there's a couple of things um, yeah. that I think are interesting. Um, is one is that in most cases people have not always had the experience of working on a great uh, project or product. Uh, yeah. So sometimes people don't know what that looks like, what that feel. Actually, it's not even just what it looks like, what it feels like. What does it feel like to work with a team where uh, with high code quality um, and you know you're hitting all of your targets and unfortunately that's a relatively rare experience Um, but there's another there's another couple of things one is that by definition when we're developing software we're always working with incomplete knowledge we don't know everything that we need to know Um, because otherwise why would we be building the thing you know, the, exactly. This is one of the things. Software, software development. Although we sometimes use manufacturing metaphors, we always need to remember those are metaphors. Um, they're not. They're not identities. Yeah. And that the whole point of software is that you are creating something that doesn't exist. Because if somebody wants exactly what already exists, that's a solved problem. Just yeah. get the thing that already exists. Yeah. Um, if somebody says, "I want that system over there running over there." That's a solved problem. We don't have to do an awful lot. If somebody says that system over there is our is is written by our competitor, we would like to enter the market and do something similar. Oh, guess what? That's something new. That's not the same because you're going to do it differently and you're going to offer something else and you probably haven't had the knowledge to do that. If somebody yeah. says we want a new version of this product, they're not asking for the same thing. They're asking for something that is like that, but now different in one or more respects. Uh, so, in other words, the whole purpose of software development is not manufacturing. It's the it's uh, in other words, producing identical artifacts. That's a solved problem. Yeah. It is the creation of differentiation. That's what you do. Therefore, by definition, what you're doing is not something you've done before. It might be similar, but it's not it the same. Is. Otherwise, yeah. that's a solved that's a solved problem. So that's the problem is that we're also working with incomplete knowledge, but that's also the joy of it: uh, the discovery, learning. But then there's that point of like, and how do we put that back into practice? As we acquire the knowledge, how do we put that back into practice? Um, people have this common experience of, well, now I know what I should have built. Now we know what we should have delivered. Now yeah. we know. How do I take advantage of that knowledge? That's always going to happen. We, uh, how do we take advantage of that? And that's, for me, one of the things that says, okay, this is a good work environment or a less good work environment is when they understand that that's an inevitability and therefore there is a feedback cycle that improves it. Okay. But I also think one of the things that I, I, I think is really common is I don't think that people realise that most of the problems in software development that people complain about are solved problems. They Really? It, it, I think, yeah. How do you deliver How do you deliver a product on time, uh, you know, t- it's typically on time, and uh, that meets the customer's needs. That's actually kind of solved. We solved that one years ago. I mean, that, yeah. that is, we know how to do that. And when I say we, I say that collectively. It's a little bit like um, uh, science fiction author William Gibson. There is a, a, a quote attributed to him um, that uh, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. And I think that's <laughs> the same with software development is collectively across all software developers, we know how to do stuff. It's just that knowledge is not very evenly distributed. And some do people... You think, do you think it's yeah. the knowledge or is it also the context is different? Like every situation is different. Who you're doing it with is different. I think both. Of the, I think that has a play. I think it's... Yeah. I think one, one, is, the, one is the knowledge. Um, and knowledge is very contextual. 
Yeah. But it's also flexible. It's, a, it's adaptable. In other words, oh, I've seen this before. Now, I have a background, um, a couple of the books I published a few years ago, in the patents community, that the whole principle of patents community is, hey, we've seen this before. Exactly. <laughs> um, here, here is a thing we've seen before. Now, your situation might be, uh, 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 it might be different. In fact, it will be different. In fact, there, there's a kind of a quote about uh, patents that comes from the originator of patents, Christopher Alexander, that you know a patent is the sameness that you can find across a million different implementations. You know, it's that exactly. idea. It could be done a million different ways, and yet it has a similarity. And that's yeah. the, that's the bit of knowledge I think we've solved. Um, we've solved most of the things people are complaining about or struggle with in terms of builds or how you know how do we develop software while manage your technical debt that's that's a known one it's just like that really is not a surprise um uh, give yourself more time to do this um and that is also not a surprise um focus on code quality and testing all the way through again these things are not surprises um automate as much as possible all of this stuff is known there's no there's no news here whatsoever there is absolutely nothing out there that i've seen that looks new um in terms of this stuff yeah. But what we do struggle with, let's go back to your point, is the context, the ability to apply it. In other words, people to acknowledge, hey, we don't know enough or we think we know enough. Don't worry. We don't need your help. Um, yeah. You're being everybody else in the uh, in the uh, software development uh, space. Um, and that sense of opportunity, can we apply that knowledge? Are we able to do that? So sometimes people, uh, I visited one company a few years ago and you could sense it amongst the developers that one of the reasons that they were, well, not particularly happy yeah. is because they were getting all this knowledge. They knew what they needed to do, but they were not given the opportunity to exercise it. Okay. And there's nothing more frustrating. If, if yeah, you don't I, know I the world could that. be a better place, then that's fine. But exactly. if you do know, if you understand, yeah. and you can, t- you, can, you can almost taste that, but you're not given the opportunity to do that, that's probably, that's way more frustrating. Um, and I think that that is one of the sources of friction that we find when people um, become disenchanted with their work or feel the need to move on. And in some cases, feel the need to actually leave the industry, although there's other social factors that kind of uh, push people in that uh, yeah. in that direction as well. But you know, that is one of the kind of the common things. In other words, we don't have we are always working with insufficient knowledge, but the knowledge is out there. Yep. Do we have the opportunity to apply it? You can't exactly. know everything. That's the that's the key thing. So all I'm saying, yeah, it's all solved problems. The point here is we can't know everything, but we can know more than we do when we start. Are we given yep. the opportunity to exercise that? Is that valued? Um, and if it is, then you know what you, you're you're on a road to somewhere. If it's not, then that's likely to cause dysfunction and frustration. Yeah, but you also mentioned then like there's a lot of I like to distinguish the what and the how. Uh, and the the problems you mentioned, you mentioned how, or I, I would say what what you need to do to solve them, but not necessarily yeah. how. Right, managing your technical debt is a thing you can yes. do, you can apply. But how do you do yes. that? Yeah, right. So here's here's the interesting one. Is yeah. there an easy answer? And the answer is no, there isn't. Um, Probably not. Know, I, I was I was it was uh, I found myself um, uh, digging into Fred Brooks's uh, Mythical Man Month um, yeah. recently um, uh, to quote from it from an article. And in the uh, second edition, it includes his uh, 1986 paper, I think it is, um, No Silver Bullet, that idea that there is no easy solution. Most of it, to pick up on something you said before, 
most of what we need to do to solve certain things is contextual. Yeah. But that also, in other words, it depends. But exactly. that doesn't mean we have a that that that's a that's a problem in itself to be solved. It doesn't mean it's insurmountable. But what it is is an invitation to is is an invitation to experiment and also yeah. research further. So I think that that is that itself is an interesting one. Well, let's try this now. Sometimes you will find in companies that certainty is valued. We're going to do this, and this yeah. is going to solve the problems, and maybe it does. But in most cases, doing this will not solve the problems because the situation you're dealing with is not identical to the one you read in the blog or saw on um, uh, or saw on a YouTube video. Yeah. And it either needs to be adapted or you need to have more than one option. Um, Emile Auguste Chartier said there is nothing more dangerous than an idea when you have only one. The problem is that many, many businesses like you to have the idea and then they say, oh, we tried that and it didn't work. And that, that's the end of the story. And yeah. it's just like, well, no, that's the first thing you tried. What's the second thing you're going to try? And, exactly. and actually, that's something I did with a, a team a few years ago that whenever they gave me, a, whenever I sort of said, okay, so how will we solve this problem? Um, uh, and, uh, and I remember one guy saying, oh, solve it. how about this? You know, it was, a, it, was a, um, it was dealing with um, uh, performance message cues and stuff like that. And, this, and they said, oh, how about this? And, I said, and, and all these colleagues sat there and, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And I said, okay. And I put my finger up and said, okay, that's one solution. <laughs> now give me another. He said, but I've just given you a solution. Yeah, yeah. that's one. I went, what about a second and a third one? Exactly. How do you know that that idea that works perfectly in your head, guess what? The VM of your head runs everything perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> The point there is that's not the real world. You've got to take this one out. So you better go armed with more than one idea. Um, exactly. So once you have that idea, then you're more likely to go, oh, okay, we tried this. That didn't work out, but here's what we learned. Let's try either adapt it or bring in ideas from the second idea. Now, that again goes back to sometimes the company culture, but also mindset. Um, sometimes people want the one answer. Yeah. Um, and it's the we easy see this. One. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's the one answer. That's yeah. the one we're going to go for. We got it. But software developments go back. It's it's a it's a problem solving thing in a lot of cases. Yeah. You're being asked to do something that is not identical to what's happened before. So you better be prepared for a little bit of variation, a little bit of unknown, a little bit of experimentation. Um, and if you're open to that, then, you know, and if other, the people you're working with and working for are open to that, then that makes life a lot easier. If it doesn't, then you find you have to use all, all kinds of uh, masking strategies, faking strategies. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we, we often hear of these. It's just like, well, do this, but tell other people that. And that that's not unique to software and it's not yeah. new to software, but we often find that. Where people are actually in a position where they can say, you know, or, yeah, Here's an idea. We think this is going to improve performance. Yeah. But, you know, we could be wildly wrong. Uh, but here's, here's the roadmap for this. And importantly, it should be a roadmap. Um, it should have more than one road. Most roadmaps that I see have one road. That yeah. Why would you have a roadmap with one road? <laughs> what is the point? You know, it's exactly. just, you know, a, a roadmap has options. Um, yeah. It shows you possibilities. And if this road is busy, then you take this road. If this road is blocked, you take that road. Yeah. Um, so... That's that's kind of, so if you like that's a mindset which gets you. For me, that's really a lot of the um, the how is you go at something without expecting that it's just going to be a straight line solution. You know, here's my ideal path. This is how we solve it. But then here's some of the possibilities that might take us one way or the other. Yeah. Um, 
and that's I think that's where that's where uh, another difference can be made, and I think it also defines, as I say, the difference between um, mental uh, an individual's mindset, uh, a team's um, uh, outlook, and an organizational culture. Um, if those are all, this is the way, and there is only one way, yeah. you will come off the rails, or you will experience a dissonance as reality takes a different course from the true way. Yeah. Or if you're just like, actually, yeah, this is normal, um, this is fine, um, then you're more likely to make more progress and feel good about it. Yeah, yeah, I really like that you described it and and challenge it that there's not really a right way, right? There's always different options. I think for me personally. Yeah. The, the choices I've made and I'm the proudest of was when we had options and we chose the right one or we weighed out the pros and cons and made a decision yeah. based on that. Uh, I can't even remember the ones where we had only one way and we did it that way because those were not necessarily challenging, I guess. Yeah. And, and yeah. we're not even challenged by someone saying, well, should we do it this way? What are the other options? I like yeah. hearing that question yeah. more, I think. And I don't think, I think it's, so. it's thrown yeah. around a lot. Yeah, and I, I think I think that that should be normal. And I, I was kind of it was an interesting um, I had an interesting experience um, just over a year and a half ago. What, um, yep. So back early 2020, February, one of the last kind of conferences that I did before the <laughs> pandemic. Um, yeah. And it was the OOP conference in Munich. And um, uh, I had the experience, my older son at that point uh, was still at school and he was doing homework and it was, I think, his maths homework. Yeah, it's his maths homework. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, applied maths, basic physics. And it was a kind of a velocity, uh, a movement question. And he said he wasn't sure how to do this. So, you know, he he took a photo, WhatsApped it to me and said, Dad, can you help? And I hadn't done this stuff in years. <laughs> so I sat down and I was there in the speaker's room and I was solving this problem on a piece of paper yeah. And I had a big smile on my face. Um, <laughs> one guy sort of said, oh, what's this? You're doing physics. And I said, yeah. I said, I'm, I'm helping my son with his homework. And I said, I haven't, there's a, there is a curious pleasure to this because I said, <laughs> I had forgotten how easy or, or, or how simple things are when there's only yeah. one answer and there's exactly. only one way to do it. And that was the funny thing is because I said, even when I am just doing coding carters with uh, a class and it's something simple like fizzbuzz or something like that you think oh yeah that's easy no no that's not easy there are a thousand <laughs> ways of implementing fizzbuzz exactly um and actually everything is it depends oh do you want to do it in a functional style a data-driven style do you want to do it you know there's lots of different approaches and um there's very subtle nuances that even on something just a few lines long yeah there are questions and yet i said this is great because i don't you know i don't have to do anything i'm just letting the maths work its way through and i know i'll know because this is a school question yeah i'll know when i get to the right answer there's no exactly and I, said, I have not done this in years even for simple coding problems there is always an it depends there's always a trade-off there's always a discussion which itself is pleasurable but that i had this kind of alternative pleasure of like yeah. oh wow this is so simple because there are no alternatives in software we're in the other we're the other way round and if something ever looks so simple you should be a little bit suspicious well, what have i missed <laughs> know, like why that. am i not asking questions of this yeah. um, and so it was a, it was an interesting contrast just for me it was just a, a kind of a, a a contrasting experience but that is that's the whole thing. Software development is about asking those questions. As you say, they don't get asked often enough. Yeah. And that's really the challenge. We And I think that's the curious, there's a kind of a, there's a tension, there's a dichotomy that on the one hand, 
software is about formalizing stuff, quite literally codifying stuff. Okay. We are saying, this is how it goes. I'm yep. using this technology, this technology. Here is my understanding of the, the problem domain, the requirements, uh, and collectively, this is our response codified in an executable form. So in one sense, it's very crisp and very formal. On the other hand, yeah. we've got all that, we've got all these questions, all these unknowns. What what does the customer want from that? How this is a new this is a new third party product we're integrating. We don't fully know what to expect from it, so we don't actually have total knowledge of this thing that we're integrating here. Um, and then there's the legacy code, which is a vast swamp of the unknown that we've got to integrate. Yeah. And then there's the other human factors we have in interpersonal communication. There are all questions and uncertainties on one side, and then the other side is. You know, there's no ambiguity. That angle, bra uh, you know, that that curly brackets there. That angle bracket is there. The semantics of these statements are this. This test passes under these conditions every single time. Yeah. You know, the compiler gives us a yes/no answer and verdict as to the uh, as to our code. So there's this curious thing that we're dealing both with kind of like uncertainties and questionable things, and on on one hand and on the other, it's all sharp edges and definites and ones and zeros and, yeah. and things that are uh, formal. Yeah, I love the contrast that you laid out and I, I love the analogy of math because obviously when you're in school and you're solving a math problem, at some point you know the right answer or you know if what you've produced is the right answer. Yes. And that is yeah. a very different in software, right? You never get very that different. stamp of it's perfect because it's never perfect. Yeah. There's always a downside. There's always a trade-off, as you mentioned. Uh, there's yeah. always my understanding that I put in the code versus someone else's understanding, right? That's also very yeah. flexible. Um, yeah. And people miss that. Well, actually, now yeah. that you've laid it out, I think I miss that sometimes as well. It's hard. Yeah, I think I, th I think we all do it. I, you, you, yeah. This is a this is the uh, this is, you get this free with being human. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just, uh, but that goes back to what I said before. We we are we cannot know everything. Um, yeah. And we will always. Somebody else will always have another point of view. They will always. In fact, um, earlier today, uh, I was involved in a workshop, and I worked through a problem that I have done a number of times. Yeah. An interesting refactoring problem, and I, I had what I thought was an optimal solution, and then somebody asked a question, <laughs> and I've shown this how many, however many times, uh, somebody asked a question, and I thought, oh, you know what, you might have a point. I kind of dismissed that point before, yeah. and then I went back and I played around with it. Um, for first, I must have wasted an extra half. No, I didn't waste the time. I came yeah. out with code that was better and gave me a, a, an even deeper understanding of that thing which I thought was familiar. Yeah. And it turns out that there was more to it than I had seen. Every now and then we reach this kind of plateau where we're not making any progress. Yeah. And then s maybe somebody points something and says, did it's you see that hill over there? It's yeah. just like, no, I didn't see. Oh, that's interesting. And I think that is the... Uh, and I think that that is the that's the, that's the interesting um, uh, aspect that, uh, as you say, with school, particularly with maths problems, they are framed in such a way that we know we know what the right answer is. Yeah. You know when you hit the right answer. Um, there's a natural stopping condition, but there's also a natural path to that stopping condition. Exactly. But the nature of software development is just not like that. It just doesn't have that. Um, the constraints don't make it that. They make it, yeah. in one sense, much more exciting, um, but potentially unknowable. But that, at the same time, that's kind of what drives it. Or I'd like to think that that's, that's what can drive our enthusiasm 
Um, we need that kind of like a little bit of unknown and a little bit of certainty, then a little bit of yeah. unknown, then a little bit of cer- uh, you know uh, 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 certainty. In other words, it, we don't want to stray too far from it, but that's the kind of comfort, I think, of any approach that encourages you to, as it were, touch base with reality, whether it is just um, something like TDD uh, or continuous delivery, whatever it is, that every now and then you have this kind of like, let's just check back with reality. Let's not get lost yeah. for 18 months. Um, exactly. Uh, but, you know, but then let's hop to the next bit we're not sure about. That so you have this kind of alternation, just enough comfort, just enough certainty to give us a sense of um, uh, progress and meaning uh, and yeah. security, but then just enough of the unknown to say, you know what, there's something here um, that drives our knowledge forward. Yeah, yeah, that keeps us going. There's the motivational exactly. aspect there. Yeah, I mean, and I love that you laid out kind of there needs to be a yin and a yang, right? Because if there's too yes. much that you know, then are you at your right place there? Are you getting too complacent? Usually yeah. people look outside and, and look for a new challenge. I think that's yes. how that goes. And yeah. when there's too much uncertainty, uh, people don't know what to do. Like there's yes. no certainty on, on what you're doing. Are you even on the yeah. right path then? Should you take yeah. a different road? Uh, those yes. are the questions that usually arise then. But yeah. And I think it is very, balance. yeah. Yeah, it is. And exactly, there is a balance. It is very much... Um, it's like riding a bicycle you know it, riding a bicycle is is all about equilibrium if you actually watch somebody riding a bicycle and you watch what yeah. the bicycle's doing it's not a static equilibrium it's not you know uh, you know the, the kind of the equilibrium <laughs> of my mug sitting on the yeah. table is a dynamic equilibrium if you stop you will fall over just exactly. you know it's it's a case of there's a very lots of minor adjustments some broad adjustments um, and there's something that's there. And I think that's quite important because we hear, I think these days, um, actually, maybe maybe we don't hear it these days. Let me, let, let, <laughs> let me contextualize that a bit. These days in the last year or so, people have used the term disruption a lot less in the tech sector than they did before. Yeah. Um, because I think now people understand, oh, pandemic. Oh, that's what you mean by disruption. Exactly. Um, whereas prior to that, people it was a bit more fashionable to say, oh, yeah, we've got a disruptive technology. This is going yeah. to be disruptive. I think people now <laughs> understand, oh, yeah, that was just business speak for a small change. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, we now we know what disruptive is. But yeah. the original idea of um, disruption um, uh, in terms of business, the bit that people miss when that language was introduced into, um, uh, into business, 1980s, 1990s, I, I, my memory on that's a little vague, yeah. there was actually a better developed theory and it was there is disruption and effectively there is consolidation. I think a different term was used, but um, disruption, consolidation, disruption, consolidation. Yeah. Um, there is a life cycle to it um, and that, that, is, that is not only inevitable, it's actually necessary. Um, I, I read a book by um, Henry Petrosky, um, uh, again, 1990s, um, uh, called To uh, Err is Human. Um, okay. And it was the role of failure in successful design. And yeah. he's an engineer. He's also a historian. And he talks about civil engineering principally. And this idea that what happens with any technology is that you go through a period of consolidation, safety, then boredom. And then somebody tries something new, and then yeah. there's something problematic, um, uh, and then suddenly we can so we learn about it, we consolidate it, new materials perhaps, or new yeah. ways of constructing things, new ways of building, and we push it, we push it, then there is a failure, and we consolidate, we learn, we, yeah, and, and so there's this kind of and that's I think the first time I ever came across that cycle outside the kind of the classic 
um, uh, kind of either life, either the cycles of life, yeah. um, uh, or the idea of yin and yang. Um, that actually, this is a thing that we do in engineering and design-based disciplines as well. And I thought, yeah, yeah you know what? Well, I think that might apply to software as well. Yeah, I, I think it might. And it's interesting that you mentioned 1990s uh, because that still holds true today. Do you think it'll yes. ever change? Like that disruption and then consolidation and that change and that drive forward to the unknown? I, I, I don't think it will. At the moment, there's no signs of it doing so. I think what changes sometimes is the time frames. I think yeah. we're seeing the time frames shortening over which that, over which that occurs. Yeah. Um, but I think that at the moment with the degree, to, uh, but I also think that there's a, there's a natural sense of um, uh, breaking, uh, as in not breaking things. Um, not in the sense of, you know, me breaking my mug, which I'm not going to do. I mean, yeah. breaking as in slowing down. There's a natural threshold um, because on one level, you know, software runs the planet. We've been... Um, introduced to that idea frequently but over the last year we suddenly realized actually yeah software underpins pretty much everything um, yeah. logistics supply lines um, the navigation of ships um, you know your, your bank account uh, your doctor your everything you know it's just all of this um, and you know we, we hear the vaccine stories and I think was it Pfizer or was it Medina you know, when you when you look at that, people talking, oh yes, and the Julia language was used. So they, they talk about programming languages in amidst all the biochemistry. Um, yeah. So in other words, software is there at all of these different levels. Um, it's yeah. very necessary. So in one sense, we can say, well, that's uh, you know, the number of developers is constantly increasing. The pervasiveness of software is getting everywhere. Our, our appetite for what can be digitalized, automated, and the rest of it is increasing. Yeah. At the same time, there is a limit to what we can handle as humans. We're kind exactly. of putting the brakes on things. Yeah. Um, if I look at most apps, if I look at, you know, I'm looking, looking at my desktop now, the, the UX is massively unimaginative. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, if, if somebody, the only thing that's changed since, let's say, if I was, um, the, the only thing that's changed since, me sitting um, at this desk, say, 20 years ago. Okay, I didn't have yeah. a desk 20 years ago, but let's imagine sure. I did. 20 <laughs> years ago, uh, me sitting here is like, my bandwidth has got better. Yes. Yeah. Um, bandwidth has got better. Screen resolution. More screens. This sure. is all yeah. good. Um, and then I start looking at the pages and the apps that I'm using, and that has not changed as much as one would expect, given yeah. the changes in all these other aspects. Yeah, in fact, yeah, here's the thing. Here's my universal computing device. You know exactly. that has changed hugely. Yeah. Um, but then I start looking at the my way of interacting with my applications, and I think, given the time frame, I would have expected more. Uh, web 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 experiences are surprisingly unimaginative. Um, yeah. I go on to you know I go onto any shopping site. I'm presented with grids and lists. Exactly. Um, Still that's the same. not the only way to organize. That hasn't changed. Yeah. Our, our ability to have them react to us and to uh, improve the resolution, that has. But the basic metaphors and structures that we're using, it's like, okay, we can't handle any more new stuff. It's, it's, yeah. it's like, oh, you know, you know, if we want to be like this vendor, we must copy their much more conservatively structured. And I think people are ready for different ways of interacting but it's like they can only take a few things at a time they don't, yeah. don't change the ground that they want to walk on i think it's a so sometimes i complain about this i think that our user interaction uh, the way that we just the way that applications are framed you know 
every social media app is now a timeline, except that some of them mess up the <laughs> idea of time, and it's yeah. like a it's like a bad time travel movie. Um, but they're ultimately all timelines, and it's just like really, is that the only way? Uh, they're timelines you can't even navigate by using time. That's yeah. a really simple thing. Um, search is supposed to be ubiquitous across the edge, uh, across the web, but search in just social media applications is terrible i mean it yep. really is not very good um uh, i know the things that i'm after I, I spend most of my time trying to work out how do i find the thing that i said <laughs> 18 months ago um yeah. how do i get you know and, and and some apps just can't do it so there is a, a kind of we're overly conservative in the things that we're presenting to users and even some of the stuff that's happening at the back end yeah. and we're very conservative as developers oh programming languages oh my goodness they move like snails um <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's the programming languages. I mean, <laughs> they whatever people are using now. Trust me, you'll still be using them in twenty years. Yeah, you okay. you personally might not, but they'll be in the market. You know, yeah. It's, um, so yeah, we're really. I've had a lot of conversations with people about programming languages and how stunningly conservative programming language design is. It is just yeah. shockingly slow. It's probably one of the slowest moving things in software. Operating systems evolve faster. Um, okay. And, you know, uh, possibly only only the IP protocol moves slower. Uh, yeah. Programming languages are they're very very conservative space. Interesting, because first of all, I I love that you laid out the interaction, right? Because I I can see that the interaction is still the same. Um, I think everything around it we're optimizing, and we have optimized yeah. it how it comes across, <clears throat> probably to the best that we can. Yes. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, but programming languages, uh, it's been said to me that they're moving quite fast now compared to how it was previously, uh, which means I would think that, well, it's going faster, which means it's kind of going fast. But you're, you're saying it's still going very slow or it, it's always been going slow? I think it's always been going slow and yeah. we are playing catch up. Um, um, so, so, for example, um, th let me think. Um, when people talk to me about new programming languages, yeah. what they mean by new is 10 years old, normally okay. within the last 10 years. I just mentioned Julia. That was created yeah. in 2009. Um, uh, I keep getting asked about, Kevin, have you done any Go? And, you know, yeah, we're moving our stuff to Go. Go, that's 2009. It's 2021. Yeah. Um, only when people start talking to me, I say, oh, have you looked into Rust? Ah, that was 2013, if I've got the numbers right. But that's that's like eight years ago. Sure. You know, that's so in other words, but, you know, you just need to think in terms of what are the other products that people are using, Kubernetes, Docker, all the rest of it. How old are these compared with the programming languages? Yeah. And we will actually find that we've changed our infrastructure for, for, for many applications. They've changed their infrastructure faster than they've changed their programming languages. Yeah. And then we look at the programming languages themselves and we say, well, there's no short what what exists now that's changed yeah. is ever since we hit the open source era the diversity of um, available no, the languages that are available and people are creating and publishing is huge yeah. that, that there's no denying that the differences between the languages are nominal um, they are effectively kind of converging and we are kind of trawling over um, most of the things that people think are new now i will say that i have a, a bias i have a very i have an interest in the history of programming languages yeah. uh, but um when we look at um when we start looking at programming languages and people, I mean, a lot of people keep telling me how functional certain things are becoming. No, we, we passed the functional peak. All <laughs> the mainstream languages, they've done what they can with functional. Mostly they're not adding functional stuff these days. 
what yeah. they're adding is procedural stuff. Um, so, for example, coroutines have become popular again. Yeah, coroutines. That's like the late nineteen fifties. Um, okay. That's Melvin Conway. Uh, Melvin Conway, the guy known for Conway's law. That, yeah, that was Conway's law was nineteen sixty eight. Nineteen fifty eight, he coined the term coroutine. Okay. Coroutines were just going out of fashion when I entered um, uh, when I entered the uh, the job market. And yeah. it's really funny to see them coming back in fashion. I'm not saying they're a bad idea. I think they're, they're absolutely great. Um, they yeah. were missing for a long time. And there are historical reasons why they, would, they, they went out of fashion. But now every language is kind of like, oh, we're going to add coroutines as if it's a new idea. It's just like, yeah. it's actually quite an old idea. I see languages like, um, uh, let's see, uh, Go has added, uh, Go added channels. So that's just over yeah. 10 years ago. The first language I used with channels was 20, uh, 30 years ago, sorry. And okay. channels were invented just uh, nearly 45 years ago, just over 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, iterators in programming languages, the idea of having a yield statement. Um, we see that in Ruby, we see that in Python, we see that in C Sharp. Yeah. That was um, 1974 that that idea was first introduced. Okay. So, so what we're finding is that all the mainstream languages at the moment are borrowing from each other. Yeah. Um, uh, they're borrowing the same things and they exactly. minor refinements, but most of what they're doing is catching up with the past. And there aren't any new, there's, well, I don't want to say there aren't, there are, but most yeah. of these are just different flavors. They're different. It's like we're making different, um, we're using the same mixers, but coming up with slightly different cocktails, but exactly. we are using the same mixers, you know, yeah. uh, you know, a, a multiple, uh, that, that classic one of multiple assignment, increasingly popular in languages and tuples. So a comma B is assigned one comma two. Yeah. Um, as opposed to A equals 1, B equals 2. Again, 1970s. Um, that was actually kind of common amongst research languages. First language I used that had multiple assignment 30 years ago. And now we've got that is becoming increasingly common in mainstream languages. Um, so there's all these ideas. So I think that people are experiencing rates of change. What they're actually experiencing is for a given language, people are putting more into the language. Yeah. Sometimes it's frustrating because the version of what you know, the version <laughs> of the language you're using last year, your colleague comes over and go, "Wow, that's so that's so 2020." Yeah. You're not using the features of the latest release. That is the thing that is changing. It's not the ideas, but the if you are focused on a particular language, uh, C sharp, Java, C plus plus, Python. Python had a very long period of stability, and in yeah. the last two years, has kind of radically. The rate of change, I would actually say, is mostly unnecessary. I quite like my <laughs> Python the way it, I like my Python around the Python 3.5, 3.6 era. Okay. Um, um, but now there's a lot of stuff being added that honestly is like, yeah, it wasn't in the language, but was it necessary? That's a exactly. good question. Yeah. And so I think at the moment, people are experiencing a high rate of change, but it feels like a, we're adding what everybody else has got kind of rate exactly. of change. There's no new that ingredient. Is, I yeah, yeah, I think that that's, and that there is a danger with some language. In fact, you use ingredients there. There is a danger that we are in the kitchen and going, what have I not yet added to my <laughs> yeah, meal? exactly. Rather than what does my meal need? And exactly. I think that some languages were just fine as they were, not perfect. No language is ever going to be perfect. But I think that we have got a little bit, every language wants to be as identical to every other language. They, they are, I'm not going to say we're going to end up with one. There will perhaps come a day when we can unify all languages because they all have the same features. It's just yeah. the syntax differs. But it, it sometimes, you know, jokingly, yes, it does feel a little bit like that. But, you know, there is, there is an element of that. And it's kind of, uh, there's not a lot of imagination. There's not a lot 
that's genuinely new and creative there. It doesn't. I'm not saying there has to be, but yeah. <coughs> I think we're fooling ourselves into thinking that that we are doing things that are different. The difference yeah. is this language didn't have that before, but that already exactly. existed somewhere else. Yeah, then I think it's also now clear to me then why some people are saying programming languages are moving fast. It's not necessarily yeah. that they introduce a new concept, like a new what it can do, and they're just taking it an, an existing one uh, and yeah. differing in how it does it, because that's language yes. specific. Uh, yeah. Very interesting. And but then what, what do you think is going to be the next... This is a difficult question, I think, but what's going to be the next kind of disruptive thing then? Because there needs to be a new what? A new, not necessarily yeah. how, but something to add onto the existing things. Some, yeah, what's going to make it different? And that's a yeah. really good question. Um, so, yeah, that, that's not a hard question. The answer's hard. <laughs> <laughs> the question's exactly. really easy. Um, yeah. I think that's a really interesting one because when we look at what, um, there's a number of things that have been, that have enabled change. So, I think one of the things when I look at programming language design and um, programming environment design, yeah. it feels a little bit like um, all the possibilities were there, but what's happened is the tide is going out, revealing things. It's like when the tide goes out, it reveals what was underneath <laughs> the water. Yeah. And that's progressively been happening. When we look back at what people were envisioning as the future of computing in the 1960s and 70s, of course, it's taken a different path. But yeah. when we look at some of the things, what's happened is that some things have been enabled. So microservices let's pick on microservices if you did microservices 20 years ago you'd have been laughed out the room if anybody yeah. it's just like it's a joke why would you do something like that because um microservices are enabled by um faster networks and faster hardware yeah. um, and operating systems that for which process creation is cheap and, and, and so on and so on. and they're also built on a huge um, you know every microservice sits on the top of a large mountain of existing infrastructure that it can draw yep. on again predominantly open source but if you try that 20 years ago you're missing first of all you're missing the mountain but also you're missing the, all those performance benefits yeah the idea of we are going to um fork a process to handle some of this and we're going to do that normally as standard on an it, it's that's culturally more unixy but normally you'd have said actually let's keep it in process yeah. It's much better to keep it in process. That's going to give us more control and it's better scale. It, it's 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 better. Why would we want to slow our application down by increasing um, inter-process communication and in you know hitting the um, latency of the network? Yeah. Why are we going to do that? Because that's going to slow everything down. But then we crossed a point at which that... So the idea of microservices, I have actually found something that suggested this in the 1960s. Okay. But nobody was going to do that. It's yeah. just it's just not practical. So <laughs> multi-process design started becoming a little bit more of a thing in the eighties. Then we hit kind of threading, and everybody said, "Don't worry about that. Just do it all yeah. in the same process." But it was the idea that there were different different things that you could do. But now yeah. the price or the the cost of what you were doing, you could say, "Actually, it's worth it. I can do this, and we have more infrastructure we can build on." So yeah. that is an idea whose that although the idea could be dreamt up years ago. You wouldn't have been able to put it into practice easily and indeed widespread use of garbage collection garbage collected languages have been around for decades but for some people they said that's that's not appropriate for our domain it's too critical in one sense or another but you know hardware has said don't worry about that yeah. um if you told me um 30 years ago i did 30 years ago i did uh, some uh, machine learning stuff neural networks i guess these days we call it shallow uh, learning <laughs> um uh and 
I, I, you know, I did some of that stuff. I did that. It's part of a master's degree um, that I did. I, I kind of went university industry and then back to university. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting is if you told me 30 years ago, by the way, a lot of people, a lot of machine learning stuff is going to be done in 30 years time. And um, people are going to be using an interpreted language to do it. So yeah. Python and TensorFlow. I'd have probably laughed at you. It's just like, no way your interpreted language is going to get to that point. <laughs> yeah. um, so what has happened is that we have been able to make some things more possible. But that doesn't mean the things that were available are necessarily new. It's our ability. Exactly. It's like the mixers thing. I can now reach the top shelf, whereas previously yeah. I, perhaps I couldn't. Um, you know, but the, the ingredient was always there as a possibility. So what is the next big disruptive thing? Well, I think the first thing I just mentioned machine learning. Uh, that was a big disruption. Uh, I think yeah. we're still going through that. Um, I think there are a number of social. I think we've realised that half the issues are not technical; that they are social. We have a huge set of responsibilities. I don't. We're, 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 we've properly understood uh, collectively. Yeah. Um, but again, that was a big disruption. That was the mid 1980s. Um, Rummel, Hart, McClellan back propagation. That basically said, you know what, neural networks, which were kind of a dead end of research up until that point. These are possible, and we know how to make how to scale this. We know how to create multi-layer networks. Yeah. But now that was new. That when that was like nothing else that it was around at the time. That was jet. So that's 1980s. We've got ourselves up to 1980s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, but if we look at everything else that has happened, it has come about through hardware. It, hardware has enabled the things that people were dreaming of. And okay. it's just simply allowed us to reach those shelves. So that's yeah. where the that's where the innovation is. Is when when a new platform get, uh, comes in, um, but also I think actually I'm, I've, I now realize I'm using a vertical metaphor. We're now reaching certain shelves, things have become, yeah. but also I talked about that mountain of infrastructure. We are building ourselves. We're allowed to stand on the ladder, as it were. The ladder is yeah. getting taller. We're exactly. able to reach it, but we still haven't got to the shelves we can't see and have never imagined. Yeah. Um, um, and so, you know, sometimes people will say quantum computing. I, I think that's a long way off okay. uh, for it to have any measurable impact based on the little that I know. I did just get a quantum computing book recently um, <laughs> uh, to turn the little that I know into the little that I know. But um, my co-author, Frank Bushman, and I have done a couple of talks the last couple of years at the OOP conference where we've kind of done a bit of crystal crystal ball gazing. Yeah. And Frank has looked into quantum uh, computing a lot more and he says you know there's some really interesting stuff there but a lot of that is decades out at the current yep. rate of progress that's decades out before it becomes a disruptive possibility um, in other words before we can actually reach that shelf before yep. there's enough of everything to allow us there so i think i think the benefit i think what's going to what could change um, I don't think is in our program. I don't think it's in our IDEs. Our IDEs have got progressively better and our tooling has got better. Again, that's the, the possibilities uh, and, and building up stuff, but it's mostly yeah. remixes of the same ideas. Yeah. I, I, think it's, I think it's got to be something to do with other people. I don't okay. think it's from within software developers. I think it's something social. It might be a democratization of some aspect of software composition. Yeah. I don't know, but... That I think is a that was a big one. If we actually look, if we if we take ourselves away from being developers for a moment, which I yeah. think it's very you know it's our <laughs> privileged perspective. Yeah. But I think if we actually look at what else is out there, what were the big changes for people? Um, spreadsheets and word processors. Yeah. Uh, spreadsheets, word processors, um, being able to buy things online, uh, mobile phones, uh, and to and social media. These have all been game changes disruptively so not yep. always positive but certainly consequences um 
and those have all come, some of those have come through hardware changes, but some of those have come through relatively modest ideas that have become, that were just better executed. Exactly, optimised. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know, it goes back to exactly what you were saying earlier on. We kind of, we've got the same kind of basic things, but we're optimising around them. And yeah. and perhaps we need to move on from some of these, but that has been where the driver has come. And that, that's kind of led people's expectation. Um, I think just over 10 years ago, if you said, hey, we're going to do a mo- mobile version of our application. Yeah. 10 years, 10 years ago is just about the mark where people go like, maybe that's a good idea. Yeah. You're doing it in 2007, 2008. You were on the bleeding edge of saying, exactly. yeah, this is going to make sense. But then suddenly everybody's got this platform available. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. So that opened up a whole space. Um, uh, and then we've consolidated in a very conservative manner within that. But that yeah. opened up a whole space of possibility. And suddenly everybody's a network programmer. Um, those that hadn't already discovered they were doing that with the web. So I think it's going to be from somewhere else. I don't know if it's a no-code, low-code thing. I'm still a little bit sceptical about that, although <laughs> I talk about, I, I always talk about Excel as being, you know, or the spreadsheet as being the yeah. classic example of this. But also that's a cautionary tale. Um, uh, Excel, honestly, it looks a lot like it did 30 years ago. Let's use 30 years as the magic mark. Um, yeah. Because it, it, it really, is that the best that we can do for spreadsheets? Um, yeah. uh, I think it's I think it's terrible in that sense. Um, yeah, it's like it's we're depriving people. Yeah, <laughs> we're depriving people of all the things that we have learned in the last thirty years about how not to do spreadsheets, um, yeah. and we're giving them a, an error-prone model. Um, we're not giving them the benefit of everything we as developers have learned. Oh, you yeah. want to understand how a computation works? Visualize it. Oh. Spreadsheets, don't visualize it. We've visualized yeah. nothing. You exactly. cannot see the connections between things. It's just cells, which is great, but that's where the bugs happen. And so so I think that something out there, I think it's something to do with the way that people are going to use it or something that software developers make available. I think that's going to be the next driver. That yeah. or that would be not not the next driver. I think there's plenty of money out there to drive what we already have. <laughs> I think that something disruptive is going to come from out there and I don't think it's necessarily from within developers of course I'm happy to be proven wrong I've done a couple of prediction things in the sure. past and I've been you know I've varied between being massively wrong and only a little bit wrong so yeah. I think on this one I'm about 50% I think I, I'm gonna put this one down <laughs> the middle okay <laughs> yeah I mean that's that's hard with predictions right yeah yeah, it's, I mean, it's a uh, fool's game. As long as you have to preface it, you have to say, you know what? Exactly. I'm going to give you one timeline. I believe yeah. this timeline exists, but we might go down a different timeline. So I'm going to back the parallel universe view. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I, I love the theories that are out there in, in 1990 and, and even before that we're referencing them, right? I wonder if in 30 years from now, we're going to be like, well, quantum computing was around in, I don't even when, I, do, I don't know when, uh, but it's going to be in the 2000s probably maybe even before. Um, yeah. But some at some point, we're going to hit 2020, uh, 2021, we're in now, uh, and, and be like, well, that's when it was first theorized, but it was never possible yeah. because of the hardware. And now yeah. we have we couldn't VR. We couldn't reach that shelf. Exactly, you know, that, yeah. That. And so, now so we have a better ladder. Yeah. 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 So I think that that's, that's the thing. So I think that... I think, in fact, actually, to look at it another way, and I just realized pro- the answer is already there, <laughs> actually, right yeah. at the beginning of, of this discussion. Um, I think the, what it, the next big disru- the next big disruption I think is out there. I think it's out yeah. there right now. The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. I just don't think people have realised it yet. Exactly. Um, or or understood. If, hey, if I take these two ideas together, I think it's out there now. I don't know what it is, but I think that 
we if we we would do for the future is look at the unexplored ideas of the past yeah there's a lot of unexplored and there's um, a guy called morris wilkes uh he was uh, i guess a computer you know the term didn't exist a computer scientist in the 1950s and yep. later in his life he made the observation he said you know a great deal of money could be made just by going back in time and seeing what was not possible yeah um you know algorithms that were too expensive and running those algorithms now because it's because the hardware has changed so much exactly um, that idea of i think that a lot of what we i think we need to get better at making good the promises of the past that we can do yeah the ones that are no longer inhibited by um uh, hardware and so on that they are inhibited by a narrowness of vision but they're lying yeah. just beyond the vision and they are possible there's a lot of ideas i believe that are out there i don't know what they are but i bet there's somebody that could go back and go you know what there's a missing concept here yeah. and do that but also looking at the present being a little more mindful of what is actually out there that people are doing that is genuinely different. not all of it's good but some of it's going to be you know actually that's fresh that's novel what would yeah. make that more accessible what would make that um, more viable perhaps it's not a big idea yet perhaps yeah. you know it, it's perhaps it's a ux idea perhaps it's a programming language idea perhaps it's an underlying technology an infrastructural idea yeah. um and somebody looking at that going like you know what that that could be the thing and just maybe it won't work this time but again it goes back to the idea of experimentation exactly. let's just try it let's just but pick up i think i think everything we need for the future or most of what we think of as being the future is actually lying around us now and in the past and we just yep. need to be become a little more aware of it is that we don't know everything uh, yeah exactly uh, uh, i argument. i like the way you put it with the roads because they're all on their own road we just don't know which one is going to take us to, to where we yeah. need to go is going to make it in the long run right some roads end yeah uh, you need to pivot here and there some won't make it yeah uh, but some do and and those go far into the future yeah that's really cool that's a, a real thought provoker i'd say uh, and that's where <laughs> yeah. i want to end it off as well thank you kevin for coming on it was thank really, you very much patrick really cool to talk to you um and that's it ladies and gentlemen kevin henny beyond coding from your sponsors zebia creating digital leaders